Just starting out, we've been seeing Jesus deal with the Pharisees through those last chapters, these last passages that we're in. And we're starting to get, uh, the Pharisees are very, starting to become very fanatical on their position. And uh, it made me start um, thinking about sports fans. And obviously we get sports fans from the way, uh, from fanatic, fanatical. And a lot of times when you're fanatic about something, you're uh, allergic to logic and reason. So, as with most sports fans, go, Cle- go, Cle- go Browns, okay, yeah, go Browns. But, as with most, spor- as with most sports fans, <laughs> I see Randy leaning over in the aisle in the back. What's he going to say about Cleveland, this guy? Um, the thing is, with, with being a Cleveland Browns fan, um, there's really nothing to be fanatical about, so we just, <laughs> we use logic. And so while all the other teams and their fan bases are just arguing and stuff like that, we just sort of sit back and, well, we don't laugh. There's no laughing in Cleveland. They're just, <laughs> just tears. Anywho, let's go back. Let's go back. We, we didn't need to bring Cleveland into this. Um, but logical arguments, um, and a lot of times in what we're seeing the, the, the Pharisees do, they start lashing out because of self-defense and self-preservation. And I can think of other times when sports fans just want to be right. They don't care about getting it right. They just want their team to be the best, and it's out of the self-preservation to laundry that they just come up with these absurd thoughts or these absurd comments. And so, um, early in the chapter, they tried to get Jesus, these Pharisees tried to get Jesus in this got you moment, and they failed. And that just sort of seems to be um, the pattern. The Pharisees just hated Jesus and his ministry and what his kingdom stood for because that meant their power and their influence and their authority would be taken away. And so they revert to name, uh, name-calling outlandish accusations and we're going to see that here tonight and, and jesus is going to respond to those accusations with logic and then a very very stern warning and so we're going to jump into the text this evening we're going to jump into matthew chapter 12 22 uh, through 37 you guys can follow me along in your bibles uh, or on the screens <clears throat> And it says this, uh, starting in verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, this, uh, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But uh, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons... 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings up evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, for your word. Father, we just ask that um, you just speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand what it is you want communicated. And Father, help us to apply this to our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in the first part that we're going to be seeing, the first few verses here, verses 22 and 24, we're going to see the accusations that the Pharisees bring up against Jesus. It started out saying, They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Again, we hear this, we've been hearing this time after time. Jesus performs a miracle, the people are astonished, the people are amazed, and they start asking the questions, could this be the promised one? Could this be the Messiah? And they've, people have been seeing this, and the, the, the fame and the notoriety of Jesus and what he's been doing has been traveling around. And so they get to see him again, and... They brought a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. And again, they're still asking. And the reason that we've been saying they keep asking and asking if he was the Messiah is just simply, Jesus was not who they were expecting. He did not come as they were expecting. They said, could this be the son of David? David was a warrior. They thought the Messiah was going to be coming to lead a revolt against the Romans. Again, they were trying to figure out what is taking place, what is in front of them. While the people contemplating if Jesus could be the Messiah, the Pharisees saw this as an opportunity to just pile on more charges and accusations against Jesus. In 24, it says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only, only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So the Pharisees are starting to connect the dots. And again, if these common people 
come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, again, all their authority, all their power, all their influence would come to the end. So they're just hanging on with white knuckles to what they have left. When it talks about the healing uh, and, and this exorcism that happens, um, during this time, exorcists used typically a variety of spells and potions and herbs. Rings and, and earrings tried to you know, use as magical things in an attempt to manipulate the spirit world. They would put on this big show to try to exorcise the demons. Jesus just simply speaks. Well, I don't know what he did in this. It doesn't say. But he heals them. And really, uh, Jesus' form of exorcism here is far different than what the people have been witnessing. Because he just healed him by the authority of God. I don't, think it, I don't believe there was anything flashy about it. There wasn't the show, there wasn't this ritual, there wasn't the smoke. I just think he simply spoke, you're healed, and boom. He could talk, he could see, and he was healed of his demon. The exorcisms are meant to confirm the incoming of the kingdom of God in his words and deeds. And this is pretty much uh, throwing up the mathematical equation that God's kingdom is greater than, uh, one of these symbols, <laughs> Satan's kingdom. So obviously, something supernatural had happened. And the Pharisees had to attribute it to something. So how do you refute something that is irrefutable if you're the Pharisees? You just make something up. You just make something up. So they attributed it to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, a.k.a. Satan. And I just picture these, these Pharisees right there, and it even says in the text, it even says, uh, this fellow... This felt, look at this guy. This guy here. And I, I, I really believe it's a hot mic. They got caught in a hot mic. <laughs> it just sort of, pff, this guy. And then Jesus looks at them, and in verse 25 it says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them. And he goes on now uh, to squash the accusations. He's heard them. And he knows what's in their hearts and he knows what their thoughts are. And he says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And so he starts to squash their accusations by using logic. All right? And I know in the whole realm of fanaticism, logic doesn't really do much. You're just going to see what you want to see. You're going to like who you want to like. But Jesus uses logic here. 
And if Satan was to maintain rulership of this world, why would he work against himself by exercising a demon that already controlled a person? Why would he lose control of something in this world? This would be counteracting his own attempt to maintain control. The only logical conclusion here is that the source of Jesus' power is God in his battle against Satan's kingdom. And he said, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. And so not only was he answering the absurdity of their argument, he flips it back on them. It's the classic, I know you are, but what am I? Because the followers of the Pharisees were taught and encouraged to pretend to cast out demons. And so if they are trying to cast out demons, and they're pointing the finger at Jesus and saying, that is the work of Satan, back at you, buddy. So who's really doing the work here? It's obvious that Jesus is acting under God's power. Verse 28, but if, the spirit, uh, but if by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus sort of ends this part by saying, this is the proof that I'm offering God's kingdom. And reiterated the fact that he is more powerful than Satan. And he does this just by painting the picture of he's entering Satan's house. It's a well-guarded house. And he, uh, Jesus is just able to waltz right in, bind up Satan, and steal his possession. He's able to take that soul that was under the power of the demonic per and just take him from his possession and restore him. That's the picture that we have here. Of, again, Jesus' Jesus's kingdom, God's kingdom, is stronger than Satan's. Jesus declares here that Satan's powers are now limited because of the arrival of the kingdom of God. And so what we've been saying all through the book of Matthew, if every time we've come to a miracle or every time there's been a healing, it's a foreshadow of what is to come, having things re uh, restored to its intended state before the fall of humanity. So we saw Jesus squashing those accusations and now uh, in these final verses he draws a line in the sand. And it can't be any clearer than this. In verse 30 he said, whoever is not with, uh, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The line's pretty clear. Either you're with him or you're against him. Either he's the Messiah or he isn't. 
Either he's the son of God, either he is God incarnate, or he's not. He doesn't leave any gray area on those statements. The Pharisees have already determined that he is not, so they decide to oppose him, and as they have already demonstrated. He's, uh, the crowds have been offered many opportunities to repent and enter the kingdom, but their day of opportunity will not last long. And I want to point this out here. Either you're for him or you're against him. Neutrality towards Jesus might be one of the greatest tricks of Satan. One can think positively towards Jesus as a good teacher or a moral leader, but still not follow him. To refuse to decide positively for Jesus or to live on the fence is to have decided against him. Again, either he is God and the Messiah, or he isn't. Verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. There's good news and there's bad news here. Let's start out with the bad news. Blasphemy against the Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. Let's talk about that for a second. In this case, what we're seeing right here is the Pharisees, by attributing the work and power of the Spirit to Satan, the Pharisees are displaying the highest dishonor to God. When a person consciously and willfully re uh, rejects the operation of the Spirit, bearing witness to the reality of Jesus as the Savior, this person cannot come to Jesus and therefore cannot receive forgiveness. I know that's a lot of words. That was very wordy. But basically here, these Pharisees were seeing God's power and attributing what God was doing to Satan. Their minds were so deprived, they became so deprived and so blinded by their own agenda aspirations, by their power, by their authority, that they were just shutting God's power off, or shutting their minds off to God. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is defiantly prideful and permanent rejection of the only avenue of salvation. So let me just address something right now. If you anxiously fear that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, your concern demonstrates that you have not. Everybody breathe easy. <sighs> So the good news, I said there was bad news, and that was pretty heavy. You know, the unforgivable sin. But the good news is there is nothing that we, can't, uh, that we can do that can't be forgiven. God is bigger than all that. 
Moving on, Jesus stays on the attack. And he says this, he says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Jesus once again goes on attack and, and um, back to answering the Pharisees by using logic and reason. And just look like a good tree gives good fruit and a bad tree gives bad fruit. Jesus, if if Jesus' works were evil, and that would have meant Jesus is corrupt. However, if Jesus' works are good, that means he is good. <laughs> really, the only good comes from God. Verse 34, mighty strong words here. You brood of vipers. How can you say, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings up evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him. This expression, brood of vipers, paints a vivid picture of what Jesus thinks of these Pharisees. Something that's really cool about snakes, especially uh, some species of vipers, is that they give live birth. And so when you're talking about a brood of vipers, it refers to a dozen or more of small, dangerous snakes that just emerge from birth from their mother's snake. And so I'm seeing a lot of faces as I describe that. So essentially what Jesus is saying here, that these Pharisees are the literal spawn of Satan. Those are harsh words right there. And this is coming from this, this person who we've been talking about as gentle and lowly. Let's just get this straight. With, these, with the Pharisees, he deals with them pretty harshly. The Pharisees attempt to hide their own wicked blasphemy by calling Jesus a blasphemer. And right now, Jesus reveals their problem, reveals the problem of the Pharisees, that their hearts are evil. And a common phrase that sometimes you hear that the, uh, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And that's what's going on right here. The actions and the words that these Pharisees are, are speaking and the things that they are doing is a direct reflection of what tr truly is going on in their heart. And so I think right now, Hope Church, it's a time for us to reflect and see what's going on with our heart. What do your words reveal about who or what you truly follow. I, I, I found this list here and I think it, it's thought-provoking and it might be something good to discuss at community, group, community groups. Um, a harsh tongue reveals an angry heart. A negative tongue reveals a fearful heart. A boasting tongue reveals an insecure heart. An overactive tongue reveals an unsettled heart. A judgmental tongue reveals a guilty heart. A critical tongue reveals a bitter heart. 
And Hope Church, as we reflect on that, let me ask this again. What do your words reveal about who or what you truly follow? Are your words and are your actions pointing people to Jesus? Verse 36 says we're going to be given account of our words and we're going to be judged based on our words. It says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, but, and by your words you will be condemned. This is a fact of life, is that one day we are going to pass on from this world and there will be, we will be face-to-face giving an account to God for what we've done in this world. Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Again, only two things are certain in life, right? Death and taxes. And after death comes judgment. And because of the attitudes And the words towards Jesus, the Pharisees, has sealed their fate of facing God's holy judgment. And that's a very serious thing. But the great news about that is that we don't have to. We don't have to face God's judgment. And it's a very famous verse, John 3.16, but I want to read a few verses after that up until uh, verse 21. It says this, For this is how God loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that, uh, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God, God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact that God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. God does not have to be our judge. I think, it's, uh, I think it's interesting here, the same way that the Pharisees sealed their fate by facing God's judgment, you can also be saved from God's judgment with what comes out of your mouth. Romans 10.9 just says this, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a lot in that verse. And it's not saying that they're magical words or anything like that, but it's just an acknowledgement of what is going on in your heart, that you realize that, that you are a sinner 
And by yourself, if you stood face to face with God, you would not and uh, have a favorable outcome with that judgment. And that the only way for God to release you of that judgment is to cast your burdens, cast your sin on Jesus. And that's why 2,000 years ago he came and he died on the cross to take that sin. And he raised him from the dead and if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not maybe, not probably, not hopefully. It says you will. Again, these aren't magic words. It's just an overflowing of what's in your heart. And the great thing with that, when we do accept Jesus Christ as our forgiver of our sins and make him the leader of our lives, um, something happens. We get transformed from the inside. And Psalm 51 says this, and this is David writing. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Create in me a pure heart. Create in me a clean heart. As we look at the, the Pharisees, and what a contrast from the Pharisees. The evil that they were speaking, the way they treated Jesus, and just the, the absolute depravity of them. And it's really easy just to point fingers and say, those people are awful. But if we look in the mirror, I think we can, and really be honest with ourselves, I think we can identify with the Pharisees. I know I can. And to get to a point to where we can call out to God, one, to save us from that judgment that the Pharisees are going to face. We can be saved from that judgment. And two, have a pure heart, have a clean heart. That is just something I'm so thankful that we can do. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, um, for sending Jesus here. I thank you for, Lord, how you just point out things in our lives, Lord. And how, um, Father, what just may seem harsh, Lord, uh, looking into a mirror, I, I pray that we can realize our need for you as our Savior. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that we can call out to you and be spared from your judgment. 
I thank you, Lord, that we can have clean hearts and that we can be made holy and we can be children of God. Thank you, Lord, for these words. And we just pray this all in your son's name. Amen.